Welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Ryan Ruby. Ryan is a critic and an author, and he joins us from his home in Berlin. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Thank you. It's good to be here, Ben. Ryan, you're living in Berlin at the moment. How did you end up in Berlin? Um, so about eight years ago, it'll be eight years in January, um, my partner uh, and I were living in New York, and she is from Berlin. In fact, she was born in uh, East Berlin, and she was on a visa in the U.S., for her university and in the United States. Um, if you're a, a foreign student and you study at an American university, you get one year visa, but then you're off. Uh, then your, your visa expires very quickly. And for her to get a visa uh, in the US, a working visa, required a lawyer, um, require, and that was very expensive. Um, and so she decided that it would be better for her to uh, move back home to Berlin and I would uh, come along with her. And by contrast, uh, for me, um, so she's a productive, valuable member of society and I'm just a sort of bohemian delinquent artist. Uh, but for me, it was very easy to get uh, an artist who's a uh, here in, in Germany in terms of uh, it's, it was much less expensive and the process was much, much, much easier. And so I came here with her in January 2014 and I've been here ever since. I love this idea of an artist visa. That's so cool that you can, you can get an artist visa. But in terms of what you've been doing since you've been in Berlin, uh, you've been doing a lot of criticism. You've written a novel. What other work have you done since you've been there? Oh, I also I also wrote <laughs> I, uh, I wrote a novel, um, and I also wrote a book length um, verse essay about the history of poetry um, called Context Collapse, which goes from Homer to uh, to the present um, to Insta poetry and investigates the history of poetry as a uh, medium uh, throughout various different technological and economic changes, but it's all written in, um, in verse and it has footnotes in verse and it's about a hundred pages long and uh, quite unsurprisingly, uh, that was never published. <laughs> Although ex <laughs> excerpts of it are um, have been published um, in uh, an online journal called Staterec, and next year, uh, an, another excerpt of it will be will be published in uh, Exact and Clam. So, so slowly, it's getting out there. But as a, I submitted it to uh, to publishers just as a lark, and it was a finalist for the for a, for a poetry prize, an American Poetry Prize. Um, but it has not, in its totality, seen the light of day. So with Berlin, it is like one of the really zeitgeisty art scenes in the world at the moment. And I guess my fascination with it is my, my, my family, I guess, came out of uh, Germany before they got out before the war, luckily. And um, I think that the, the, 
the idea of the evolution of Berlin in terms of culture, in terms of uh, different aspects has been really interesting over the last, especially 20 years. How have you found the growth of the culture there? Um, well, I can, I can say a, a couple of things. Is one is, um, as, is, as everybody knows, um, the city of Berlin as we know it today is really only as old as uh, uh, 1989. Right, mm. or 1990. Um, so it's only a, a city that's, that's in that respect quite young because of course uh, it underwent a sort of seismic change when uh, the Berlin Wall came down uh, in November 1989, uh, having been split since 1961. Uh, and then of course it had been totally turned into rubble in 1945. Uh, and changed again in 1933 when the, when the Nazis took power and so on and so forth. Um, so it's a city that's, it's, it's very much a city that's always or has been for a long period of time, um, totally reinvented almost from the ground up. Um, and meanwhile, bringing along the entirety of that, of that history with it. Um, let's call it from the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century to to the present, and so so the city in that respect is is in a way very very young. I first came here um, in the summer of 2005, and the difference between Berlin in 2005 and the city that I moved to again in 2014 was also quite enormous. It's become much more international. It's become much more expensive. Uh, it's become a city um, where West and East are still present, but mean something different, uh, even than as early as, you know, 20 years ago. Um, so there, there are many, there are many respects in which it's, it's a city that, that is now part of this sort of broader cosmopolitan or if you're a critic hipster archipelago um, that sort of extends around the world, these sort of world capital cities. But it's also a small city. Uh, it's a city of three million people. So it's a metropolis, but it's not New York. It's not Istanbul. And it certainly isn't Mexico City or Tokyo or Shanghai or Hong mm. Kong, for example, right? Um, and in that respect, it's, it's a very quiet, calm and livable place uh, in, in many respects. We can get into the nitty gritty of, of sort of local politics here, which is fascinating, um, especially politics currently uh, having to do with uh, cost of rent. Um, there was an expropriation referendum that went through this year and 60% of the city of Berlin, which is also a state, um, voted to expropriate the largest um, holder of sort of largest DAX listed holder of real estate uh, in the city and whether or not that will come to fruition is, is the case. But that's one of the sort of things that guides uh, the local politics of the place, which is still very vibrant, uh, especially if you're coming from the United States, um, local un, uh, grassroots movement based politics uh, from a left perspective on very uh, basic economic issues is still something that that happens here very very frequently. Hmm. I know, like federally, Angela Merkel has moved on, and you know you're getting new people involved. 
is there a shift to the right in Germany or is it still like mainly kind of, you know, swinging to the left? Well, uh, the, the read on this is, um, not to get too deep in the nitty gritty of German politics, but uh, Angela Merkel was running a left triangulating center right coalition um, with a junior partner in the uh, SPD, um, which uh, has now been changed. Um, and so the government is now being run now by the SPD with junior coalition partners <laughs> um, in uh, the FDP, which is, uh, let's call it, that's what's known here as a liberal party. And that means for, for, for listeners in the sort of Anglosphere that's libertarian and the Green Party. And what that looks like on paper is a shift to the left. What that is in practice is not going to be that. Um, or it seems very, very unlikely that it will be that, or it'll be that in uh, very, very specific ways and not in others. And one of the reasons for that is the FDP uh, is uh, been given control of the finance ministry. And the finance ministry is probably, aside from the chancellery, the most essential ministry to occupy. Uh, and so what the uh, Christian Lindner, who is now going to be the finance minister, is basically has the opportunity to put the kibosh on any important uh, climate-related um, legislation, any important social legislation involving, let's say, housing or tax policy or what have you, um, modernization of uh, infrastructure um, or getting people to switch over from diesel to um, uh, electric vehicles and so on and so forth. Uh, anything that might require the purse strings of the of the German state, which is of course the purse strings are the most powerful thing the German state has, uh, has to pass through him, and he is promising, of course, a return to debt breaks um, and uh, li limited spending on on that tax decreases of taxes and so on and so forth. Uh, and so what looked what would look on paper for an outsider to be a shift to the left is really at best going to be a maintenance of the status quo and at worst is going to be a sort of scattershot um, uh, and somewhat less stable um, series of policies which are not centrally coordinated. So that's the the sort of beginners, uh, sort of tip of the iceberg guide to what just happened in, in German politics. We should probably talk about books at some point, but I thought that was a very interesting uh, digression. Let's talk about your novel. So Zero and the One, you published it in 2017, and it's kind of a physical philosophical novel. It's almost Lacari-esque. It's like it got Javier, Javier Marias vibes to it. And it's essentially about two, I guess, two students who are out of out of their comfort zone and they they meet each other. Do you want to tell us a bit more about it? Sure. So the the story of Zero and One um, is a story of two people. One is an American uh, from a wealthy background from New York who uh, takes a year abroad at Oxford where he meets a working class uh, Brit from Bristol 
who is the first member of his family to go to university. And they uh, meet in a tutorial, uh, a philosophy tutorial uh, at Oxford and immediately become uh, engaged in one of those young uh, relationships of uh, where, where um, the male friendship is founded on these sort of commerce high ideas and the idea of uh, what it would be like to take their philosophical ideas and put them into practice. Uh, it's a study in that respect also of charismatic leadership, of um, what happens when you abandon uh, sort of a political outlook uh, for an uh, sort of entirely aesthetic one. Uh, it doubles as a sort of allegory of the relationship the, between the United States and Britain, the sort of quote unquote special relationship hmm. that existed at the beginning of the 21st century when it is set and about the way in which uh, the relationship that, and that's a relationship between two empires. Um, and so the, that sort of larger drama is sort of played out in the sort of relationship in a sort of classic Gothic campus novel sort of way between the two students. Um, the American University. Yeah, I I won't ruin anything for for readers, but I think that the way you have put this novel together and the way that these two characters interact, the American character is he's so influential and he comes in, he's so charismatic, and this British character who's kind of vulnerable, he's a bit of a I get he's not a bit of a loser, like he's kind of the 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 black sheep in his family, I guess. And he's so influenced by, by this character and the way he kind of ends up doing things that challenge him and doing things that are against his nature is really interesting. Yeah, I, I think that the, if you had to give like a, a, a one-line synopsis of, of this book and this relationship, it's that, you know, uh, when the gods wish to punish us, they they answer our prayers. So uh, I should just say that the names of these two characters, the American is called Zach, mm. uh, the Brit is called Owen. And what happens is, is that as often occurs in, in these kinds of relationships, uh, one person uh, feels that they're nothing, the other and feels that their friend is, is you know, uh, the person they would like to be. Mm. And what happens over the course of this book is that Owen learns from, starts to imitate and become Zach. And he is punished precisely at the moment, as a punished is, uh, is too strong a word. Um, he, gets his, um, he gets his wish. He becomes his friend. And that leads him into a sort of um, uh, a moral nightmare, as it were, a moral nightmare landscape. And he doesn't realize that it's because he has um, become his idol, as it were. Uh, and the thing that he wished to be uh, when he was looking at it from the outside is a sort of nightmare space when looked at from the inside when, you be, when you've begun to occupy it. It's it just, it, it's so interesting because I think, like you said before, like I think the the allegory between the relationship between America and the UK, the idea of like power and and the fact that power can be so influential on other people, is so interesting. It's so well played out in this book. The brilliance of the story is that the story is so accessible 
but the complexity you've worked into it is so much deeper than what's on the page. I, I wanted the I wanted the book to operate at a number of registers simultaneously, and mm. for me, the um, the fun part of it, and I think when I speak sort of um, in a broader sense, um, what I like about a novel is a novel that has many layers wrapped within it, not all of which are immediately visible, mm. uh, and so when you're reading this book where you're where you're looking at it in a sort of most superficial level is a uh, like I said a, a gothic campus novel a, a thriller uh even um but once you sort of see the way it's constructed was my hope uh you would start to see these other layers um and what I hope to capture uh at the layer of human being right what it, the structure of what it means to be human is the relationship the way the way uh, our relationship to power uh, dominates sort of our interpersonal and interpersonal relationships, and more specifically, how um, imitation, resentment, um, uh, desire, uh, 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 yeah, structure structures are are being like who are we? Right, in some respects, we are the things that we imitate. Um, and that seems to be the, this, this sort of very, very, very important fundamental structure of sort of charisma, dangerous charisma, um, which we see not just in the level of interpersonal relations, but even at the broader level um, in, in politics, for example, uh, is, is, a very good, is a very good space where that occurs. Like, what is the structure of uh, attraction to, um, to a charismatic leader? And so the, the question, the, the, the broader political question, political psychology uh, is also at play there. I think most people know you for your criticism because you are, you're, you're prolific. The essays you write and the, the subjects you write on are so diverse and so interesting. And I think you write um, so beautifully about lots of different things. I want to ask you, like, what's your process with writing criticism? What's your process with uh choosing something to write about is it do people approach you to write do, do do you write freelance like how does that work but um i'd love to i'd love to be able to give a general answer to that question but it's uh and i think that i actually this is worth saying which is this to say that um when you're working as a critic as i've been sort of doing seriously for the last two but really last year um what you have is a sort of piecemeal hodgepodge um, experience. And so uh, these sorts of things have to be sort of taken a, as a sort of case-by-case -case basis. So the, 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 the unfun answer to your question is uh, some of those pieces uh, were pitched, um, some of those pieces were commissioned, uh, some of those pieces were an editor wrote me and was like, pitch me something. And each of them individually, I think that the, the true account of how that comes to be and how that comes to work out would be a sort of case-by-case uh, -case basis I could tell you what happened with uh, X piece or Y piece. So for example, just to, to give one example, um, I wrote a piece on Peter Weiss. And that piece on Peter Weiss is something that I've been pitching for 10 years. No, excuse me, not for 10 years, for um, since 20, um, 2016 for five years. Um, and I've been trying and trying and trying and trying to get this, uh, this piece in. And I finally got the right combination of venue, editor, uh, occasion, uh, 
and then style. Uh, in that case, it was a style that was a had its sort of personal essay element to it. And that all came together at one time for in one place with a group of people that would not have been otherwise possible except in those circumstances. Yeah. Uh, another piece I wrote about uh, uh, Wittgenstein and the way that that came about is uh, an editor contacted my friend to ask my friend whether they wanted to write about this small book. Uh, my friend is a translator and she said, ah, oh, you know, like the person that I know that knows Wittgenstein is our, is our mutual friend Ryan, you should write him about it. Yeah. So that person came to me and was like, hey, I had this thing that I want you to write about. Can you do that? And so I did, right? And each of those different pieces comes out in a particular scenario uh, and is not uninfluenced by the venue it appears in, by the length that you're given to do it, by mm. the time that you have to do it, and by the people. And ultimately, at the end of the day, by the particular relationship that every critic has with their particular editor. Yeah. Um, and so, for example, in the pieces I did for New Left Review's sidecar uh, blog were very much determined by the character of that particular institution um, and the kinds of books I was writing about for them, uh, which is to say mostly contemporary Anglo-American uh, fiction um, was determined by the space provided by that institution and the particular history of the New Left Review and its particular uh, politics and so on and so forth, which enables a certain kind of criticism to occur. And that's very different than uh, the, something I wrote for The Point or for The Believer, yeah. just as an example. What are the kind of authors or what are the kind of writing that you would seek out to, to review or to interview? Uh, yeah, so for me, like, it's kind of, it's kind of amusing to me, uh, uh, which is to say that my sort of specialty, my wheelhouse, is um, neglected French and German modernists, essentially. Okay. Right? That's, yeah. that's, that's sort of my specialty. Um, uh, and what happened is that when you're writing about neglected French and German modernists, you bring a sort of certain sort of style or a set of concerns to what you're writing about, um, which are very, very different from the one you might have if you were if your real house was contemporary American fiction. Yeah. Um, but what happened to me is very strangely, I've been I was commissioned or yeah, was commissioned to write a bunch of pieces about contemporary American fiction. <clears throat> and I think uh, if those were successful, it was because I brought to them the background or sense of concerns from this other place, uh, from French and from continent, let's call it continental modernism. Yeah. Uh, and that's the perspective I was looking on and through uh, contemporary American fiction at. And, you know, readers can uh, judge for themselves, but I think that that sort of was a sort of fruitful, um, a fruitful lens through which to view the sort of uh, what, is being, what is being produced today in, in, in the Anglosphere which is not something I, I, I read myself um, when I, uh, as a reader, it's not the first thing that I go to, uh, to read. We'll talk a bit more about your favourite writing shortly, but do you have a favourite interview or favourite uh, essay that you've written? I think, you know, I think the two pieces that I, 
that I mentioned, the, the, the Peter Weiss piece um, was probably uh, on writing on the, the aesthetics of resistance and the piece on Wittgenstein. These were probably the most successful pieces uh, that I've written. What I like about them is I was given the freedom and this is, this is the thing, right? Um, uh, you have to have the, an editor who will give you the freedom to uh, experiment, to go long. In this case, I was given almost a sort of blank check in terms of uh, word count. Mm. And that really enabled me to do a lot of different things in those pieces, combine literary criticism with uh, narrative, um, with a sort of embedding uh, this criticism in a sort of the story of my reading it. And that's something I'm really interested in doing. Uh, as a as a sort of piece of, of uh, let's call it, uh, you know, no nonsense, uh, straight up criticism. Uh, I think the piece that I, I, I like most is the one I wrote about uh, earlier this year about uh, fake accounts. Right. Um, and then the piece that I wrote last year about uh, Friedrich and Mayrucker. Um, yeah. and, and both of those were, were different, very, very different pieces. And we're advancing very different views with the with fake accounts. I wanted to talk about uh, the way the use of particular 18, what I called 18th century forms revealed something important about the way that discourse, the discourse network of 21st century um, mediated specifically by uh, the internet and how that influences uh, how the sort of cultures of both 18th century Britain and the contemporary 21st century world, uh, uh, the, the literary cultures and economies of both of those places produce a kind of interesting, um, interestingly similar uh, kind of form. And then with my Rucker piece was uh, the point there was what I liked about that was to get to introduce people <clears throat> to a writer who I think, so my Rucker is a classic uh, example of a, a continental, she's from, or was from uh, Vienna, mm -hmm. and she is uh, miraculous, I'll, I'm sure I'll talk about her a lot uh, later, uh, but to get to introduce people to her work, because um, I had had such a profound experience reading it, and I wanted other people to have that experience reading it, um, and you know, um, the way that came about was I was talking to one of my records translators and I was like, you know what? I'm not really understanding what's going on here. Mm. Uh, where's the essay that I can read that will tell me what my rocker is, is doing yeah. in general? Uh, and she said, well, there really isn't one. And so I decided that I would write that essay and I would go through and read all of the Myrucker that is available in English, uh, which is a, a tiny fragment of the work that's available in German. She wrote over a hundred books. Um, and to provide a sort of introduction to her work that I wanted to read when I first encountered it. Yeah. Do you speak any other languages other than English? Mm -hmm. uh, so German is my daily speaking language. Yeah. Um, uh, it's the language I use most often, mm -hmm. uh, and it's um, I have what's called fluent idiots German, as you like, yeah. as you might put it. Yeah, um, which is to say, I can speak to almost anything, <coughs> anyone about almost anything. There are there are specific uh, like uh, going to the doctor is difficult, or 
talking to an, a repair person would be difficult um, uh, or, you know, dealing with taxes is always, it's always tricky. Yeah. Uh, but almost anything I can, I can talk to, but of course my error, I, I, you know, I, I make uh, errors of, for example, um, uh, declension in cases. And I, I'm always getting <clears throat> my articles incorrect, yeah. uh, which has, large in German has <clears throat> not unsignificant downstream consequences mm. on uh, what you say and uh, but I'm always capable of, of being understood the other language I have uh, which is is reading French I can I can read French uh, and okay. in fact I've, uh, I've translated from the French uh, although I can no longer speak it so if you were to put me oh. in front of a, a French person uh, if you were to give me uh, you know the the newspaper, I'd be able to read it. Yeah. Uh, but if you were to put me in front of a, a French person, I would uh, turn into a stammering, blubbering fool. Uh, <laughs> so interesting. All right. If I was your editor and I had an unlimited wallet for you, uh, mm. unlimited word count, what is your dream project? It. Yeah. What's your dream project? <laughs> oh, uh, uh, well, uh, you mean for for a piece of criticism? Yeah. Um, I would like, editors of the world, if you're listening, um, I want to write about bottom stream. Oh, um, wow. Anna Schmidt. Yeah. Nice one. Yeah, yeah. That is the book that I want to write about. Um, and I want, and I, I, I have been trying to write about it again. Uh, this one I, I have been trying to write about for years. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, I'm waiting for the opportunity to come to write a very, very long essay about simply what it is like to read uh, Bottom Street. Now, would you write about it, reading it in the translation or reading it in the German? Well, I would. I, I would. I would bring up the German definitely. I mean, Bottom Street is definitely of the kind of German that is definitely beyond my pay grade. Yeah. Uh, and I don't feel bad about that because that is, the kind of German, and I put that in quotation marks, that is beyond the pay grade of fluent German speakers, of native <laughs> German speakers, right? This is, uh, you know, it, it would be, you know, um, uh, yeah, uh, so, so I don't feel bad about this. What I would do is I would read the English translation, uh, and of course the story of this book uh, in, in its translation in English is a fascinating story and involves many moving parts. Uh, Chad Post, wrote a blog post about it for Dalkey, which uh, gets the, the, major, the major points, but it's a, it's a whole cast of characters. It's uh, a race against time. It's a person, John Wood, the translator, is doing his um, you know, life work, magnum opus translation. Uh, it's being funded by Jantum Riesmann, um, who's an interesting character in and of himself. And so the, the story of this, how this book comes to be in English is fascinating. Uh, and I would read it in uh, uh, its translation with the German Anfass to see how that um, uh, influenced my reading of it. Um, and the point here would be to think about the unreadable as such. What does it mean for a book to be readable? What does it mean for a book to be unreadable? Um, what does it mean to derive aesthetic pleasure from a book that you cannot understand? And I fully expect, um, and, 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 and this is part of a broader sort of 
critical project to, to suggest that understanding is uh, not always an appropriate relationship to a book. Uh, and just to take, to take an example of um, two different writers, uh, Finnegan's Wake, right? Yeah. Uh, so I've read Finnegan's Wake. Do I, have I understood Finnegan's Wake? That's an interesting question, right? What does that mean? Uh, and then to take another example, John Ashbery, who I've read very, very often and very recently, I just re went through uh, almost all of John Ashbery. And the question of understanding there is, is different, right? Um, and one of the things that often happens, I think, with books that are quote unquote hard books or books that are difficult books um, from that sort of high modernist um, and postmodern tradition is that understanding is, is the, um, it's sort of the desiderata that we're expected to bring to this book uh, in order to gain pleasure out of it. And I think that that's fundamentally a, um, uh, that has fundamentally unfortunate consequences for readers in general and for these books in particular. Uh, and I would like to sit down and describe the process of reading this book, Bottom of Dream, which is written, for, for those of you who don't know about it, is written in um, a, a non-language, a language that bears a resemblance to, to German, but is not quite German, um, uh, and involves uh, heavy use of etymology, it breaks up typography, um, and so on and so forth. Um, and it's the kind of book that, if you look at it, uh, what is occurring in it is not immediately apparent just by, by virtue of being able to read it. Yeah. And that's the question I'm interested in vis-a-vis uh, -vis that book and the project of reading difficult books more generally. All right, editors out there, please give Ryan lots of money to write that because that would be so cool. Would love to yeah, I, I hate to say it, but that would require money because that it would take, to, to read, even read this book might yeah. take, you know, to simply pass your eyes over it yeah. uh, might take uh, even a month's, two months' time, you know? Oh, uh, yeah. I, I reckon that's a six-month project, no doubt. Yeah, exactly, right? So that's the kind of thing that, like, and the question is, is, like, you know, like, and that's an inter sort of interesting thing about it, about literary economics. Uh, again, this blog post I cannot recommend it enough uh, by Chad Post at the Docky Archive blog. Um, really talks about the economics of putting this book into the world and how um, how it's, it's an, an impossible proposition for a publisher from a purely economic point of view. Um, and then, you know, sort of downstream from that, uh, as a critic, right, how can you write about that book as a critic for a non-academic audience? Like the, the world of being a freelance writer just the economics of it don't just make absolutely no sense. The amount of time that it would take to go into doing the bare minimum for that is something that almost no critic can, uh, can afford to do. This is, this is more of a question of me being a reader. Is a lot of the money for reviews, is it through like places like Kirkus and places that are, you know, sponsored reviews that want you to do something positive, that want you to really, you know, talk up a book to sell it? Well, again, here's, here's a case in which I think when we're looking at criticism, you have to look at not the whole of criticism, but rather the parts of criticism. So we have this debate and we're all talking about different venues in different places. So Kirkus, Library Journal, these are reviews 
which are very, very short, less than 100 words, right? Um, and their primary, their primary function is to get booksellers and libraries to purchase them and, and to stock them, right? That is not for your average reader. That's one kind of review. Those are industry reviews. Um, Publishers Weekly is another example, right? Uh, the next sort of kind of review that you might want to discuss is something like a, a newspaper book review page. So like New York Times, I'm just I'm sorry to give only uh, US examples here, but the New York Times, the um, Washington Post, LA Times and so on and so forth, the, the few newspapers remaining that have book reviews sections or published book reviews regularly, those are around 1000 words. Uh, you, and what the function of those is to tell people, right? One of the strange things about books as a commodity is it's one of the very few, if not the only commodity that you purchase not knowing what's inside, right? Like, uh, you know, when you have a, when you have a, when you buy milk, right? You know what milk tastes like, right? Uh, and you, all you want is that your, your milk to be a particular quality and fresh and I'll tell you what the percentage of fat in it is and so on and so forth. None of that is true with the book, right? The book is a sort of mystery commodity. And every time you go into it, as speaking here solely as a consumer, you're taking a risk. So uh, the, the point of a, a book review is for a New York Times book review um, is for a consumer of literature to say whether or not you might be interested in this book, right? So that's another kind of review. The next level up, uh, and for me speaking, I don't write any of the former, I write almost none of the, the second. And then there's a third kind of review, right? There are reviews which discuss the place of this book in the culture, the place of this book relative to other books that are like it, um, what the sort of thematic concerns of that book might be, what one's relationship to reading those books are. And you can, those occupy a sort of space which uh, the New York Times book review functions as one end and something like the point, uh, to give another example, functions at the other, um, where you've gone from a space in which what you're consuming is not necessarily uh, advice about what to do, i.e. buy or not buy. Um, what you're consuming is a work, of, uh, a work of literature in and of itself, right? So a, a piece of criticism that is its own pleasure uh, that you, uh, read with the express purpose, maybe you do buy the book in question or read the book in question, but the purpose of it is to read that essay, right? And in the former case, right, with the New York Times case, um, the, the tendency to be positive is not to be balanced against the tendency to be negative, right? To get a, to get a, a rave review, and to get a pan are not really the only options. There's rate review, there's pan, and there's no review, right? right? And what people don't seem to understand is, is that, that what you're looking at is the, is the tip of the iceberg of literate production, right? And so the question is, is if you're a debut novelist, right? And your book is not gonna get a rave from the New York Times, um, the New York Times is not gonna assign a pan of that book is simply not going to review it. Yeah. Right? And the kind of books that get pans, for example, are books by known quantities, right? 
Jonathan Franzen is an example, right? Um, Malcolm Gladwell, right? Mm -hmm. The kind of people who, uh, who ex who, whose books must be reviewed, right? By the logic of the, the sort of publishing economy must be reviewed and then have the freedom to be reviewed in any which way the, the critic sees. And so right. I think that the of positive reviewing or that the idea that the reviewing is, is overly positive um, is a result of too great a focus on, the, on that kind of review. Okay. Whereas in other kind of review, sorry, this is a sort of long-winded explanation at the other end of the spectrum, if you're reading a review for the sake of, um, uh, you know, the criticism itself, um, why on earth would you publish a review of the aesthetics of resistance um, several years after its pub date at all if the critic was going to simply tell you that it was not worth reading, right? Yeah, I see. There's no reason for doing it. But on the other hand, when you get to that point, whether or not the book in question, it's either the book in question is already good, right? And the goodness or badness of the review becomes largely, or of the book in question becomes largely irrelevant, if that makes sense. And so I think that the, the discussions of uh, positive reviews or positive culture uh, in, in reviewing or a sort of gold star culture or trophy culture, right? Where everybody gets a trophy is, is not only a misrepresentation of the, of the sort of uh, critical space as a whole, but also a sort of um, sim radical simplification of the vast numbers of kinds of criticism that are out there. And that each of those kinds of criticisms are operating on very, very different constraints uh, relative to their specific venue, editor, word count, audience, and so on and so forth, right? So in, in, in these discussions, it, we always, it's always better if you want to get the right answer, you really have to go to the nitty gritty specifics of the specific um, uh, uh, institutional space in question that is producing the work that you are reading, is my point. Okay. Before we move on, I just want to ask you one more question about reviews. Do you think that the space for really good critical reviews is diminishing because of the plethora of online sites where people can just, you know, say, I thought this was shit or I, you know, I hated this book or I really like this book. Do you think it, it diminishes like real criticism? Um, no, uh, I don't. Um, I have a, a, apparently a very strange view, uh, which is that uh, what we're living in is, uh, a, I'll say it uh, over and over again, we're living in the golden age of literature. Um, we have more bad reviews than ever. Uh, yeah. Certainly, that is true. And of course, it's important to know when, when you're talking about something like Goodreads, what you're reading is customer comments, right? You're not reading criticism, you're reading customer comments, or rather, customer comments as criticism, right? And that belongs in our discussion of, of this sort of broader critical landscape, but that's what's going on there. And the people who read those things and the mentality of those people are the kinds of people who are looking at um, books from a very, very specific lens, uh, namely, do I want to what is the fat content on yeah. this milk and do I want to drink it and is it fresh right that's what they're doing right yeah. um, whereas in this other world it's not that it's not a zero-sum game here uh, the total abundance of, of uh, publishing made possible by the uh, by the internet 
um, has also increased the amount of very, very good criticism out there. And uh, it's a great time to be a critic uh, in the following sense. Like we've got people coming out of the academy to write popular criticism. We've got, uh, you know, specialists who are working in all different sorts of languages from around the world and everyone's talking to each other, sharing ideas, being collegiate, being competitive. And that's really doing a great thing for, um, for criticism just as an art form in itself. Um, so in one respect, uh, it is a very, very good time to be a critic. In another respect, it is not. In that respect, um, has nothing to do with the art of criticism or not nothing to do with the art of criticism, but is a sort of unfortunate side effect of the art, uh, the art of doing criticism, which is that uh, in a world where there is extreme amounts of supply and competition, in this case of meaning producing language, uh, this really drives the price down, right? So uh, what you have is, is ever better criticism under ever more difficult um, conditions for producing it. And so I, I, my tendency is to be amazed that despite the um, difficulties, the economic difficulties in being a, a critic that so many people are doing such a good job uh, producing it. And uh, you could be, you could go through your whole year uh, reading nothing but superb criticism, um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of it by um, hundreds of different, you know, thousands of pages of it by hundreds of really, really different great critics from around the world, each bringing something new and exciting and challenging to the form, to the mm -hmm. kinds of books we're reading, uh, to the kinds of discussions we're having about literature. And, it's, and in that respect, I think that there's, uh, there's a reason to be very, very positive uh, about the critical community who is, you know, critics hate this, right? But your critics hate when you're like, oh yes, there's a bright side. And the bright side is, is that everyone's doing such absolutely fine and fantastic work. But that's what it is. Sorry, critics, uh, you're doing good, <laughs> you know? We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Ryan Ruby. This episode is brought to you by the Nicki Minaj biography, Wet Ass Pussy, ghostwritten by Joshua Cohen. Comes with a free mop. Available everywhere you get good books. What are you currently working on? So at the moment, I'm working on two pieces. One is in edits and one is in research, um, both of which are for the nation. Uh, the piece that is in edits for the nation is a review of Parallel Movement of the Hands, which is the first collection of posthumous poetry by uh, John Ashbery, uh, who is, in my view, the greatest American poet of the post-war uh, period, right? Uh, let's call it when this law is even signed, 1955. The greatest American poet since 1955, John Ashbery starts in 1956, his first collection of poetry, and has this marvelous career uh, up till um, 2017 when uh, he died at the age of 90. Uh, and so uh, this is a review. This book came out uh, several months ago, maybe about six months ago, uh, but it collects five of his uh, previously unpublished long poems 
uh, into a single collection. And it's the first thing uh, or near to the first thing that we're seeing from John Ashbury's archive. Um, and so I'm writing about that. And the book that I'm currently reading and doing research for is uh, by Pierre Sage. Um, oh, the Moby Dick. Yeah, yeah exactly. So I'm reading Ahab sequels, okay. um, which has just been published uh, or is soon to be published by Contraman and Press and yeah. a translation by uh, Jacob Seifring and Tegan Raleigh um, of a book that was written by Pierre Sanders in 2015. And yeah, it's appearing in English now uh, at the end of this year. Uh, and that book is a, um, uh, I, I don't know if you're, if you're I'm just, you know, most realists will be familiar with Pierre Sanders, right? Yeah. This is, um, the, the genre of this book is a, a, a high burlesque or travesting of uh, the great Melville classic, um, Moby Dick, which is perhaps the great, no, is the great American novel. Um, and it's, uh, it's very interesting to me. What I'm doing with that particular book is I am, or the thing that I'm starting to do with this particular book is to read it as a book that is written in the 21st century, which obviously it is, and to read the very, very different approach. There's, there's a sense in which this book is sort of a structural, has a structural parallel to the original Moby Dick, which as you know, includes both narrative and sort of, uh, let's call them literary essays on, yeah. on, the, on the, the world of whaling. But to look at, the, uh, at these two books is one is deeply embedded in a mid 19th century uh, culture of, uh, excuse me, economy of extraction um, versus a book that is written in the 21st century. And although uh, most of the book takes place in the early 21st century, late 19th century, uh, to look at it as a 21st century move to what that looks like, uh, what, that, the, what the whale ship as a workplace in an economy primarily devoted to extraction of an energy source looks like when transferred to a world, which is our world, um, but also our world was born in the late 19th, early 20th century uh, of a service economy. Um, and what the figure of the titular captain uh, looks like when viewed in this radically different sort of uh, economic and cultural configuration. Of course, one of the things I'll just say, I'm, I'm, I'm only in the middle of it now. One of, the, one of the very, very interesting things to do is to read this as an American and to read this, uh, of course, Sanj is a, a French novelist. And uh, the, one of the, and I'm not sure if I'll write about this in the piece, but the way in which this rewriting is indebted very much to, um, uh, of course, Shakespeare, but also uh, a tradition going from uh, Rabelais to Gide to um, Sartre and Baudrillard, right? Uh, the seeing your national masterwork as interpreted through a writer from a very subconsciously literary writer from a culture that a literary culture you're, you're very much familiar with is is really interesting. Through, the, through through that looking at, at this figure through that looking glass has been has been entirely fascinating. I think that's going to be one of the <coughs> massive books of 2022. I think it's going to be huge. Like I really I've read a lot about it, and I'm so keen to read it myself. Yeah, it's fun. 
it's it's a real fun book um and i don't want to say too much about it because i like i said i'm still halfway through it and i'm yeah. still formulating thoughts about what it will be but i i mean uh so you know Assange is is, is doing a an interesting thing which is to say uh he is one of the, the practitioners of something or other like which is uh intertextuality postmodern pastiche and intertextuality, but I'll, I'll just say that, of course, I think he's actually doing something much more interesting here in Ahab sequels than merely that, what that suggests, but just to, you know, for a short, you know, label, that's sort of what he's up to. Um, and, he, you know, he brings that, he brings that to Kafka, he brings that to Lichtenberg, um, he brings that to, uh, um, who else am I, am I missing? Um, Guevara, um, and sort of in this book, I think he takes it to a, a new level and, uh, and it escapes mere intertextuality um, and does something quite different that is from, from sort of classic 1970s Pynchon-esque postmodernism to something that's much more sort of disturbingly 21st century, if you like. And it has to do with our 21st century um, relationship to uh, to the sort of uh, literary economy of, of of the current of of the current moment. Wow. Okay. I think you've just sold a, a few copies of that book. Um, I hope so. Yeah. Um, yeah. Read Pierre Sange. Uh, you will you will not regret it. I mean, see, there you go. We can we can you could do both. We we could talk about literary the you know the book is an allegory of literary economy and be like, yeah. ah, you know what? By, by this book. <laughs> by now. <laughs> Perfect. What else have you read recently that you really, really enjoyed? Um, so one of the one of the things that's sort of the I think the downside of, of working as a being a working critic is that I've pretty much spent most of my year in reading, 21, uh, reading books that I'm writing about, work book work for, you know, books for work. Yeah. And of course, <clears throat> You know, I come to this as a reader, and for me, one of the things that I reason I became a reader is to have a certain uh, non-instrumental, you know, um, relationship to literature. And I've had to teach myself. One of the things I've had to teach myself this year uh, is to uh, turn off, and it's not been easy, to be honest, uh, to, to turn off that part of my brain that is not always trying to write about something. So I, I found that when I was reading books. I was reading them as a critic, right? Even when I was just reading them for fun. And I would be like, well, what would I write about this? What would I say about this? How should I interpret this book? And so on and so forth. And so I've had to, I, and I, this is a work in progress still, and I'm still training myself to be able to try to turn that off. And one of the things that I did <clears throat> was uh, to, between every project, to read a small, short, a short book. Um, and as a sort of palate cleanser, as I moved between two different two different writers, where that was possible, uh, and so some of the some of the books that I I read this year that I didn't write about uh, that I really liked were first of all the uh, book that I just read, and I'll I'll go backwards through them, um, is by Mark McGurl, Everything and Less, the novel in the Age of Amazon, and that is a book that I actually I think I has been providing a sort of lot of the basis of the thoughts of my discussion of, of Assange. And I think I'm actually gonna 
try to work that into the, the review of Assange. And what that book is about is the book of literary criticism, uh, which takes the, uh, uh, the corporation Amazon as a supra author and uh, the, who's, who's anti-hero or unlikable protagonist is Jeff Bezos. Yeah. Um, and looks at the world of literature as currently being produced through the eyes of this corporation. And the vast oceans of literary production that are occurring right now uh, that are simply um, not things that critics or most people who are reading are talking about and to look at them as an aggregate. And what I mean by that is uh, genre fiction. So one of the interesting facts of this book is <coughs> 35% of literary production is romance novels. Yeah. Have you ever read enough romance novel? God, no, no. No, I, nor, nor have I, right? Yeah. And, and so the, the thing here is, is like, the irony here is we're sitting here talking about very abstruse avant-garde, high modernist or late modernist novels. And the vast majority of literary production which is subcritical, right? Just not worth writing about, um, much less reading. But the vast majority of literary production is self-published romance novels and genre fiction more generally. And, and it's a fascinating world and it's not ir irrelevant or not unimportant, not uninfluential to the broader literary economy that we're living in. And uh, Mark McGraw does a really interesting job and what he says is like, instead of looking at the high art classics and the art novel, let's look at um, lit RPG genre novels. Let's look at, what is the name of it? Adult baby diaper romance novel, <laughs> right? And what is that, you know, this is a serious literary critic, right? What, what does that tell us about the world in which we operated in a world which is increasingly dominated by, by two factors. One is the component consolidation of global media conglomerates, right? Uh, there's only four of them left and Amazon as a publisher of the vast majority of fiction that is produced today. It's incredible, including fiction and translation. Uh, recently, New Directions, right? Uh, New Directions is, was the uh, most prolific uh, producer of uh, uh, fiction and translation uh, into, into the US. Yeah. Now that is no longer the case. Now it's Amazon Crossing. Wow. But okay. I had never heard of Amazon Crossing before I, I read this book. So yeah. fascinating book. Um, and very mm -hmm. useful. I mean, there, there are, I, I'm formulating critiques of it, but I, I just think that like, here was an example of, of criticism that, that, that uh, is a, what it, the, the perspective he, um, he, McGurl puts on uh, our current literary space by viewing it in this way, is, is extremely fruitful. Yeah. Uh, another book uh, that I read was, um, I think a book that has, I, I've not yet, it, it's, it's sort of a groundswell of, of interest in it. Very much in my wheelhouse of books that I like is uh, When We Cease to Understand the World by yeah, Ben Labatut, yeah. Fabulous book. Um, very much the kind of book that like uh, any book written like that is going to be a book that I like. It is very much within the genre wheelhouse that I like. But of course, that's a book about mostly German scientists, mostly in the uh, 
uh, or first half of the 20th century. Mm. Um, the obvious influence is, is Zebald. Um, the uh, depictions of these various different historical scientists, Einstein, Heisenberg, uh, and so on and so forth, um, and mathematicians as well, uh, is, is absolutely fascinating, extremely well done. Um, and a wonderful, I think that might be a book. I might be getting a book. Um, <laughs> um, extremely, extremely well done book. Um, and did you read it? I, I've got it, literally got it on my desk and I haven't read it yet, but um, yeah, it's sitting there and it's waiting for me. So yeah, I would. Um, yeah, I think, you know, it's sort of a disservice to, uh, to say what the book is about, which is to say, it's like, you know, ah, scientists, extremely rational. But secretly crazy, or like ah, scientists uh, understanding the world has some unfortunate side consequences, right? Yeah. And you could talk about the book in that way, um, but you know, really, what this book is about is 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 uh, I think that rather the, the fictionalization of, of, of known historical figures um, in this particular form in order to emphasize a broader sort of theme and commonality. Um, that runs through the sort of personalities and the modes of being that get us this sort of important sea change in our understanding or failure to understand um, the very fabric of the of the universe. So yeah. that was fabulous. Uh, mm -hmm. And yeah, that was translated by uh, Adrian Nathaniel West. Uh, excuse me, Adrian Nathan West, and I think it was shortlisted for the Booker, right? I think it was, yeah. Board. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, the international booker, of course, mm. which is much better than the non-international booker. Definitely, um, but that's got that's been getting um, uh, you know that's a book that of very very high quality that is getting uh, its due praise, and that's always very heartening to see. Yeah, uh, another book, uh, Luis Sagasti, Fireflies, uh, translated from the Spanish by Fionn Pech, um, which is um, something also very similar. Uh, these sort of stories of the intricate weavings and retellings of history. Uh, the one that uh, it was given to me uh, by the translator uh, himself uh, because it has a lovely um, uh, sort of riff on, on, on Wittgenstein. But I, the thing that I found surprised to, to find there and which I really loved about it is this great um, series of passages on um, the relationship between um, uh, Joseph Boyce and Joseph Boyce's time during the war, the artist, uh, Joseph yeah. Boyce during the war. Uh, and that's interbraided with uh, Kurt Vonnegut uh, and his time in Dresden. Wow. And what we get is a, here again, we get another story about two very disparate historical figures who were occupying a similar sort of space uh, at, the, at the same time and uh, sort of subterranean or sort of suggestion of their, of their sort of broader um, uh, historical relationship. Uh, and I should say, I love Boyce is someone who's very interesting to me. Kurt Vonnegut is, for whatever reason, not someone who's very interesting to me. Yeah. Um, but the way that these two figures are, are intertwined in that, in that telling, I don't know the degree to which it is fictional. I suspect quite a bit. But the illusion of the possibility of these two figures being connected in the way that Sakasti suggests um, are is quite tantalizing. Amazing. Um, 
And then uh, a few more. Uh, so uh, this year, uh, Sublunary Press published uh, anecdotes by Heinrich von Kleist, the uh, early 19th century. Yeah, yeah, it's fabulous. Uh, I don't know if you're uh, if you're a Kleist fan, but this is collecting his sort of work for uh, for newspapers, feuilletons in uh, in Berlin in the early 20th century, translated by Matthew Spencer. Um, it's sort of, I mean, uh, Kleist is someone who's, who's who's very interesting to me, and this is um, for people, you know, for all the people out there who are are big fans of Kleist. This is his his nonfiction as a work, but of course, it's very unique um, and a, a compliment and a compliment to to his fiction. And uh, yeah, and the last book. Um, I would say that I, I read that I really enjoyed was finally got to read um, my friend Lauren Elkin's book Notes on a Parisian Commute. And uh, that book has its sort of origins in a sort of Perec like exper experiment. Uh, but instead of exhausting a, a, a place in Paris, um, sort of um, the Place Sans of Peace, which Perec writes about, she writes about her time. <laughs> on the 9192 bus as she goes through Paris. Oh, yes. In the, yeah, in the years 2015. Yeah. 2016, yeah. And she writes it all on her iPhone in sort of her notes function. Yeah. And it's a way of her, and she describes it this way, and it's, and it's sort of an interesting use of this particular tool, which of course we think of the iPhone as a tool of distraction, which it normally is. But to use to keep the, the notes function on to describe the uh, commute that she's having uh, and to be in the presence of her commute um, uh, on these two buses, people in, she encounters the the signage that goes up or down. Um, of course, living in Paris in the last in, in that period of time is an interesting time to be living in Paris uh, and to be in public space in Paris, and of course the the movement through this sort of very well-known city, which is of course the city that's best known for its walking, right? So flaneur culture, and of course, uh, Lauren has written a book on the flaneurs. Uh, and so this is an interesting take on a different mode of transportation. Um, and it's something as personally uh, that I am interested in doing here in Berlin. And so I read it to see how uh, Lauren had done it. And it's really, really uh, a magnificent uh, short book. For, for people who are interested in psychogeography, who are interested in, in the culture of Paris, who are interested in what it's like to be a woman in public space, um, all of which are touched on in extremely distilled um, and elegant sentences Amazing. written all on, a, on this technology that we all have. So, so I would say that those are like the last five books that I, that I read in between sort of uh, the various books that I've been writing reviews of that really, that really have stuck out with me um, this year. Were there some books that opened the world of literature for you and sent you on this journey? That book for me is uh, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, uh, James Joyce. And I very, very distinctly remember the uh, moment I first discovered it. I can give it a date, uh, which is August 20th, 1997. Wow. is the day I first heard about James Joyce. Um, and the reason I first heard about it and can give it a date was because it was my father's birthday 
and he came home from work and he had his colleagues had given him uh, a Burger King crown, you know, one of these cardboard crowns yeah. for his birthday or whatever. <laughs> and on his crown, there was this quote, um, which uh, is a man of genius makes no mistakes. His errors are volitional and are the portals of discovery. Um, and my father and I, one of the things that happened in our relationship, of course, is we would watch Jeopardy together. That was the thing we did together. And trivia, um, name that tune during our long car rides. Um, so there, we had this sort of, part of our relationship was this sort of trivia uh, answering uh, culture, as it were. And, you know, uh, I see this quote on his hat and he's like, okay, Ryan, five bucks, who said it? Or who wrote it? And I was like, oh, I didn't, you know, I gave some guesses, I didn't know, uh, I'll give you a clue. And uh, uh, I was 14 at the time, you know, and he said, I'll give you a clue. Uh, it's uh, it's an Irish author, and I was like, uh, you know, the only two Irish authors I knew at the time were Oscar Wilde and George Bernard Shaw and Yeats. I'm sorry, that's three. Um, and so I said all those things, and he was like, no, it's none of those people. And I was like, fine, Dad, I give up. Who is it? And he said, it's James Joyce. And I very distinctly remembering in my 14-year-old way, replying, he can't be that good if I've never heard of him. Right. Um, and the next day, my father, who was appalled by this, rightly so, uh, gave me a copy of uh, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man and said, here, kid, this is the author you've never heard of. And I opened to the first page and I distinctly remember it was a Penguin paperback classic, which is still in Los Angeles, where I'm from, and it had that beautiful light green spine and that lovely uh, feeling in, in one's hands, perfectly weighted book. Um, and I opened to the first page and I, I distinctly remember having the, the feeling of what the hell is this? I, can't, I, have, I have no idea, I have no idea why this is a book, what this is trying to say, um, what, is that, what does it even mean, like, right? Um, and the, I then had the feeling that I absolutely had to know, right? And so that was the crucial moment for me where I was confronted with something that I had no idea what was going on and then I had to know. And so I made it my project to read this book. Uh, I read books about this book. And then of course, it came to Ulysses. Um, and that was, I, I suppose, I started trying to read Ulysses at the age I, I finished, finally finished after a year of trying to read Portrait of the Artist. Um, and then I started Ulysses and it took me another two years to finish Ulysses. Um, but in the process of doing, and of course the quote uh, that I quoted earlier is of course uh, from Ulysses and the uh, genius in question is of course Shakespeare. Um, uh, and the scene in question is, is, the, is a selling curve scene in the, in the National Library, which is still to this day my favorite scene from that book. But the, the feeling I had when, when reading Portrait and then Ulysses uh, right after was both incomprehension, a desire to solve, a desire to find out what was happening, a desire even to understand what was going on, 
as I said earlier, and also a sense of massive expansion of possibility, right? To go from the, the sort of books I was reading, which is what were very, you know, you know, books that were in the tradition of the 19th century novel to, to getting, you know, high modernism sort of dropped on me at a very impressionable age in which I didn't know what to do with it. Uh, I had the experience of understanding that, that the world of literature was extremely vast in its formal potential. And in some respects, like everything that I've done subsequently, and it, and it was the kind of moment that I was like, yes, I didn't know this could be done. Now that I know this could be done, I would like to participate in doing this. Um, and in, in, a, in a weird sense, that determined literally almost the rest of, of my life in, in a way. It's like one of those moments that I always look back to as the moment that was determinative uh, for the rest of my life. And it was my own sort of silly ignorance and arrogance, but also my desire to understand something that I couldn't or felt that I didn't understand to, to derive pleasure uh, out of that um, has determined, yeah, the, the person who I am today, what I do uh, on a daily uh, basis. And also is given, you know, sort of set the foundations for my taste in, in literature more broadly. Um, and for me, I have, I, have a, I have a theory, which is that there's a book like this for everybody. And I assume this is why you ask about what's your gateway book, right? That's yeah. a good way to put it. What is the gateway for a serious reader into serious reading? Everyone has that moment where they, they you know, Dickinson said, you know, the top of their head comes off and they... Um, uh, see literature uh, in this in this way of, of something that you want to devote your life or a significant part of your life to uh, you know to reading uh, to the joy of and the pleasures and the profundity of, of the experience the literature can provide and and it's like a you know it's like a drug or it's like a disease you catch it you get addicted to it um, but whatever that book is I. I I've always had the, the hypothesis that that determines, that's the moment in which your, your, also your, your, your tongue gets burned as it were, uh, and this forms your taste, right? And so for me, like all of my subsequent reading, the, there's a sense in which um, that was the formative moment of, of taste, what I thought literature should be like, what I thought literature could do, the criteria which I bring, the evaluative criteria which I bring to, to literature, was all formed by the sort of premature encounter with, with, uh, with Joyce and mo high, high modernism more generally. And that's still with me uh, to, this, to this very day, um, 25 years later. Holy shit. So we have to, like, we have to have this episode sponsored by Burger King because <laughs> yeah, essentially, yeah. so Burger King Thank has Burger led King. to your your entry point into, into serious literature. That's amazing. Yep, absolutely. Uh, and that, you know, that's a very, that I, I find that that's, um, uh, I, have to, I have to unpack or think about this a little bit more, but I think <laughs> that there's, there's something um, to this and that's important that relates to, you know, the feeling of what it's like to grow up in uh, suburban Los Angeles with Burger King representing the kind of, aesthetic taste that that exists right which is not to say right which is like uh you know chain um uh it's a you know it's a 
a chain food store. The food is not a very high quality, but it's sort of mass food and the desire to escape that into a space of, uh, of uh, high literature um, and to, to leave, to get out of this space um, and to come to Europe um, is, that, that, yeah, that, 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 that is not a, that is not an irrelevant symbol or of, of the trajectory that's happening there. I suppose. Uh, that's so evocative. I, I literally want somebody listening to this to put up a photo of a Burger King crown with that quote on it. That would be so cool. Yeah, that would, that would, I, that would be like the return of the repressed there. Uh, that would be like the kernel of the real, back to sort of like symbolic moment. Because, you know, when you become a reader, when you have a gateway, when you go through the gateway, like that's rebirth, right? You're reborn as a different person once you have this serious encounter and it doesn't have to be with reading it be with music with art whatever it is right but when you have a profound uh encounter with something like that with an object like that uh the old you dies and a new you is born and the question then becomes is and i suppose the, the strange thing uh that happens is to what extent or what degree are you faithful to that uh to that particular experience and I can definitely tell you, quite to my father's surprise, I remain uh, fanatically faithful to that experience uh, to the extent that it was very much biographically uh, determinative uh, in a way that I do not think he uh, predicted when he <clears throat> maybe made the error of giving me that book wow. before I was ready to read it. Yeah. Amazing. So I think maybe we'll title this episode Portrait of the Artist as a Young Whopper. <laughs> And honestly, that's that's such a cool story. I really like love that origin story. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll tell my, I'll, I'll I'll play this for my dad. See what. <laughs> we'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero, and we'll come back with Ryan's top ten. This episode is sponsored by Litburger. This week's specials: the Norman Mailer. Ishae patty on rye with kosher pickles comes with a free steak knife, mmm delicious. Or try the Jonathan Franzen, plain white bread with no filling. How about the Welbeck, a bottle of red wine and a packet of fags, no burger included. Check out the full menu at libburger.com. Please note the J.K. Rowling burger has been cancelled. We're back on Beyond the Zero, it's time to hear Ryan's top 10. I, I think this is the most vexing part of this uh, of this format for for all the people you've had on, and uh, this was the most most difficult um, because I think that like right the idea is that this is supposed to be like desert island discs right yeah like um, and I think that like my list uh, I am um, I think as I as I mentioned to you which is that I have I am an inordinate I have an inordinate respect for the for the classics. I think that my my true top ten desert island disc would be very much, uh, uh, you know, just a sort of like great books canon books because I actually think that those are the books that you would want with you uh, if you only had ten of them. Um, but I thought that that was also sort of you know, given the given the format that we're we're doing here uh, less interesting. So I try to put up different parameters um, together for the list that I did form. So. 
Ulysses is not going to be on this list. Dante is not going to be on this list. Shakespeare is not going to be on this list. Homer is not going to be on this list. Uh, which, if in a purely objective sense, that's those are the authors that should be on the list. Plato should be on that list. Bible should be on that list. Um, Thousand One Nights should be on that list. But this is not that list. So what I try to do is I try to give um, uh, ten books that do something that I think is really uh, unique and important, which is that they blend the fiction and nonfiction uh, in an interesting way. So thinking of, you know, Hat as a novelist, Hat as a critic, books that are criticism, but practice as a, as a literary art form or novels that engage in sort of crit critical reflection. That was the sort of uh, thing. So like art criticism, artistic criticism and critical artistry. And those were the 10 I, I, I chose. Mm -hmm. um, so that said, number 10, um, Economy of the Unlost by Ann Carson, uh, which is a book of, so Ann Carson, of course, is a, is a great uh, poet, um, but, and her best well-known work of, uh, of uh, nonfiction or uh, critical writing is uh, a book on Sappho called Eros the Bittersweet, which is also wonderful, but in the economy of the unlost, which is a book I turn to very, very frequently, she uh, weaves the braid of two different writers uh, from polar ends of literary history. The first is Simonides, um, a, let me say, is it sixth century or fifth century uh, Greek poet uh, and Paul Cezanne, the 20th century, uh, a, a 20th century poet born in Romania and lived and wrote most of his life in Paris. Uh, and I've written about both of these, both of these writers uh, as well, both of these poets. And what she's talking about is the relationship between poetry, economic production, and the function that poetry has as a means of apotropaic magic to ward off our mortality. And her examination of both of those writers, but especially, you know, Salon is very well known, but Simonides is less well known and not much of his work survives, but it's a fascinating figure. And her, he's, he's known for being the first poet to accept money for his work. Yeah. Uh, and so her discussion of the way that uh, the change of the literary economy from uh, sort of Homeric gift economy to the rudimentary space, space of a money or commodities economy, absolutely fascinating uh, and totally relevant, even at this late date in history, in the 21st century, as we start to think about the economics of, of literary production, what literature is for, and she makes a very convincing case of what literature is for, uh, and what Paul Salon is also doing when he's writing his poetry, beautiful, beautiful poetry, uh, is to ward off death. And that is a sort of trans-historical criteria for, which is also something that I've argued in some of my other work, uh, for what it means to be, for the poetic as such. So that's number 10. Uh, number nine is uh, I picked uh, the Geography of the Imagination by Guy Davenport, uh, who's a writer who, who is uh, just an uh, absolute genius. It's hard to pick one book of Guy Davenport. Uh, he is both a critic, he's a poet as well, uh, a short story writer, um, 
late 20th century um, American. He's, he, he lived in Kentucky. Um, and his, there's so many things he's doing. Geography of the imagination collects together both his short stories and his criticism. And what's so interesting to me about those things is that he uses his, his, his criticism is very, very narrative and his short stories are, are critical. So for example, he writes a beautiful piece, a uh, beautiful short story called The uh, Airplanes of Brescia, which is about this moment in which Kafka meets Wittgenstein at uh, an air show in the town of Brescia. And what we're getting there is not just the story about Kafka and Broad, uh, we're, we're getting a story about Kafka as a writer in a moment before he is, or when he's on the cusp of becoming the writer, we will eventually come to know. And uh, he meets Wittgenstein there, this is I think 1913. So he meets Wittgenstein there and Wittgenstein there's nobody, right? Uh, we are rather, we don't know, no one knows who Wittgenstein is going to be. And in the weaving these two stories together, he, um, he's not only just giving us a narrative of these sort of two historical lives or fictionally imagining them, he is also uh, doing criticism about Kafka um, in particular. And just to give you another example from, from that particular collection, he's an author that I would just say, you have to read all of Guy Davenport, you know? Um, but to, to give another example, the titular story or the titular essay there, the, the geography of the imagination, is a discussion of the works of uh, Edgar Allan Poe. And what he does there is he locates this within a story, um, a very descript uh, uh, meticulous description of, um, uh, of the painting. Um, oh, where's my brain? Um, American Gothic. Okay. You know, the, the, yeah. with the, Pitchfork. The two farmers mm. turn out that they're, they're dentists. Well, what he does is he goes through and he analyzes this particular painting and he goes through the in just sheer detail, right? What did the button say? Uh, what is the fact that, in fact, we don't have a farmer here, we have a we have a dentist, right? What is the fact that like this this piece of seemingly catch art, right? Um, why was it why why was it produced? Why is it, why, why, why is this something we're taking seriously? And he evolves an entire theory of 19th century American literature um, from, the, from his discussion of the origins of the buttons of, on the doctor's coat, or excuse me, the dentist's coat. And I think that um, uh, he is a perfect example. Henry James sort of the novelist, right? To be a good novelist, you have to be someone on whom nothing is lost. And that's true of a critic as well. And, both his fiction and his criticism, Guy Davenport exemplifies this ideal uh, in a way that is really head and shoulders above many of the people writing uh, both criticism and literature in the time period, late, late 20th century uh, US. So number eight, um, Roberto Colasso, uh, The Marriage of Cadmus and Harmony. Um, we lost Colasso this year and it's just a total giant uh, of Italian and world literature. And of course, he's also a publisher uh, and a polymath. Um, and it's hard to choose which of the books uh, to, to, from his work to, to pick up, but uh, Cadmus and Harmony is Colasso's sort of investigation of 
Greek mythology and Roman mythology. And what he does is he does a sort of, he does audit, excuse me, he does Ovid one better. And um, so the metamorphosis is a story that ties and connects all of Greek mythology together in a sort of linear history. And what Klausa does is in that particular book is he makes a, a sort of analysis of the function of Greek myth and its relationship to tragedy and moving back a little bit further, its relationship to ritual um, and its relationship to sacrifice and hunting, right? So he gives us a sort of entire panorama of the sort of subterranean world of Greek life that we encounter through these myths. And he retells them all in a way that um, brings on almost probably illusory, but almost perfect coherence to the entire spectrum of, of classical art. And it's a miraculous, um, both as a, as a literary, right, rereading these books, but also as a, uh, a, an analysis of what these myths are doing uh, and what they say about the things that are really fundamental in human life that we moderns have very much forgotten about, but nevertheless plays an important role in the way that we construct our societies, whether it's uh, our discussion of, you know, meat eating, our relationship to storytelling, our relationship to the divine and so on and so forth. Um, Klauser really brings it, brings it all together in an extremely satisfying uh, literary whole. Uh, whole. <clears throat> and, um, is a good gateway. I, I read this after a number of books, but it's a good gateway into sort of a, a sort of side interest of mine, which is sort of the anthropology of, of Greek religion, which is in itself a, a fascinating thing and is uh, sort of according to one uh, school, sort of the, the origin of the, the literary form that we call tragedy, which is probably the most important literary form in the West, period. Uh, number seven, uh, Pierre Klosowski, Nietzsche and the Vicious Circle, which is uh, a book, th this I think is a book that I, I expect the, the fewest people uh, will have heard of, but it is, uh, Pierre Klosowski was a uh, French novelist and philosopher and translator. He was one of the early translators of Walter Benjamin and Wittgenstein. Uh, he was friends in Georges Bataille, uh, and was part of his Asafal group. And this is uh, his book on Nietzsche. And it's a biography and it treats Nietzsche's madness um, at, towards the end of his life in the late uh, 1880s, early 1890s as not an aberration, but rather as a willed and constructed project. And he reads Nietzsche in an extremely fascinating way. He's the, the book is an attempt to sort of understand what Nietzsche meant by the notion of the eternal return. And the biography that, that Klosowski produces of Nietzsche is one of just the superb examples of the, of the genre of biography. <clears throat> and it reads like Nietzsche. Foucault said of it that it was on par with anything Nietzsche uh, had written. And that is necessarily an exaggeration, but it's not too crazy a thing to say. Um, and it is a miraculous work of treating, reading Nietzsche as a Nietzschean uh, and a strange figure and person who produced these even stranger figures and works and treating it as if it all uh, were, and Nietzsche has an observation that 
that every philosophy is sort of the unconscious expression of, of biography, right? Of the, of the philosopher's biography. And to take that idea seriously, to take the notion that what Nietzsche was doing was writing autobiography um, in, in both his figures like Zarathustra, of course, uh, but also in his, in his other work, and to read Nietzsche as doing something very deliberate um, up to and including uh, his, what we can only now call his sort of psychotic break in Turin. Yeah, number six, the Rings of Saturn. Um, I, so one of the, the, the pieces I wrote this year was a review of the biography of Sebald. Um, and I was one of many people who uh, reviewed this um, and I reviewed it critically. Uh, and then in that particular review, I, I also discussed what Sebald was up to. And although uh, there were some criticisms I had of Sebald in that review, uh, specifically in his relationship to the politics of his era, uh, the thing that I would want to emphasize is that I, I was reading Sebald as an, uh, critically, but as an admirer of the fundamental thing that I think he does. And when people talk about Sebald, <clears throat> and especially when people talk about the rings of Saturn, they're either talking about one of a, a couple of things. They're either talking about Sebald's use of photographs and so the relationship between image and text, uh, they're, or they're talking about the sort of melancholy tone uh, or lugubrious tone of, of Sebald's writing in relationship to the sort of historical tragedies and traumas that uh, he describes, most importantly, the Holocaust, um, or they're talking about um, the relationship between fact and fiction in those books, uh, which of course is a very important topic for current Anglo-American uh, readers and writers. But for me, the thing that, that Sebald does, um, not uniquely, but he's one of the few people who does, few people and few writers who in literature um, produces a particular effect that I think is for me, the sort of ultimate literary effect. Um, and that is he uses his use of detail. Well, first of all, the way his sentences move is that he, his sentences move um, and they become, it becomes difficult to follow exactly at first where they're moving towards. Uh, the, the sort of logical structure of the Sebald passage as a whole uh, has this sort of feeling that it don't quite know where it's going. And, it, in the meantime, creates a series of uh, seemingly irrelevant details or digressions. Um, and what then emerges as you continue through this sort of labyrinth of language and, uh, is that from this chaos, which, which I think actually quite resembles the world, right? From the chaos of the world, from the information that we receive from the world, from the vast amounts of detail, right? Uh, patterns start to emerge, motifs start to emerge. Uh, and in, in the rings of Saturn, uh, the particular, there are, there are a number of them, but the most important one is, is, the, is the silk thread um, that quite literally threads the book together. And Sable produces by the end of the rings of Saturn in a very complex way, the, I, the illusion or the impression that despite, that from the chaos of, of information and detail, uh, there is a coherence and a meaningfulness 
to all the stories that have been told. And no detail that seemed to be irrelevant was in fact irrelevant. And what he does is he does this in an extremely artistic way. He creates a, a, a combination of the surprising and the inevitable, as I wrote in the piece, uh, that produces the illusion of coherence uh, in a world that is, I think, rightly described as fundamentally chaotic. And that for me is one of the highest level artistic effects. Uh, and he does so in the Rings of Saturn uh, in the most complex and aesthetically compelling way. And so even though there are criticisms of Sebald in my piece, I think that that thing that he does uh, is, uh, that particular thing is, is actually under, under discussed relative to the others that I mentioned, uh, as well as being a very, a sign of very high artistry. So number five, um, Friederike Mayrocker, uh, Brut or the Sighing Gardens. Um, it's hard to pick one thing from Mayrocker. As I said earlier, she wrote over a, a hundred books and many of them, especially, and she lived to be, she lived to be very old and many of them in her sort of mid to late period um, are all a part of the grand project, right? She's one of those writers, and I like this about writers, whether it's Bernhardt or Marias, um, or even Sebald, right? Is, is that you're, the books become a sort of artificial division and what you're looking at is a life project. Um, and so I, I've artificially picked Brood or the Cyan Gardens, which is, uh, you know, we could, have got, we could have done Raving Language, uh, which is her selection of English poetry, or more recently, um, the communicating vessels, um, trans or not more recently, but more recently translated by Alexander Booth, who lives here in Berlin. Uh, but I picked Brut. Uh, Brut is the longest of her works translated in English. Uh, it was written in 19, or it was at least translated in 1998. Um, and it uh, concerns, uh, it's sort of, Friedrich Gemeyerecker is, is going through life and what she's doing is she's engaged in this sort of documentary process of her own mind. Uh, the, the immediate scene here is that she has just lost her mother. Um, she has a long relationship with the poet uh, Ernst Jandl, um, who's also a sort of major literary figure at the time. She has lovers, she's getting older. Um, she talks about the books that she reads and likes. Um, specifically, her one of her favorite books is Derrida's *The Postcard*. She talks about her, you know, sitting in bed and writing or reading, and and uh, it's sort of uh, a, an almost. I cannot think of another writer who has more perfectly documented the experience of what it is like to be that person than Myrucker. Uh, and that's what I think is amazing about her work uh, and her overall project, which is best or sort of most um, accessibly and coherently expressed in this particularly artificially cut up volume known as Brute with the Zion Gardens. Uh, number four, uh, I, now we're getting into proper, to proper novel territory. I couldn't leave this one out. Uh, Dostoevsky's Demons. Um, and I picked this one, this is, for me, this is the great, I think this is the great political novel. 
uh, ever written. And the reason I picked it to include in this particular um, list is because of the way it uses the novel uh, and the forms inherent in the novel to break down those forms. So, um, uh, and to engage, okay, so how do I talk about this? Um, the critic Bakhtin in writing about Dostoevsky and Dostoevsky's poetics talks about Dostoevsky as a fundamentally dialogical or uh, polyphonic writer. And what happens in Dostoevsky in the, in the major five works, but in, for me, most successfully in Demons is a dramatic discussion and a moving away of the novel from the novel form into the epic, into the prose epic. And each of the characters in this book are um, representations of political positions um, that were being, that were taking place uh, in uh, Russia at the time that Dostoevsky was writing. And so it's the, the story of course of, a, of the devil comes to town uh, and throws the society into chaos through various forms of intrigue, um, conspiracy, um, violence, and it culminates in a sort of carnivalesque outbreak of the sort of breakdown of the society. But what it does is, is each of these characters, and Dostoevsky obviously is, is he's writing here as a critic of critic of, 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 of nihilism, but also particular positions that I think are, are political positions that are much more uh, defensible, especially relative to the ideal that Dostoevsky had. But what he does here is he gives each of these um, political or cultural or aesthetic views um, a fundamentally um, compelling hearing so that we as the reader can uh, occupy and be seduced as it were by the things that Dostoevsky and the kinds of views and the kinds of ways of living that Dostoevsky would like to criticize. Of course, he does this with Raskolnikov in, in Crime and Punishment, and he'll later do this in uh, Brothers Karamazov. But I think that, that, that um, Demons really gets it from the pure, from the pure sort of um, range of political opinion uh, then taking place in Russia um, really gets it all. And so what Dostoevsky is doing here, and of course is Dostoevsky, people always say of him, it's like, ah, yes, uh, valued, to be valued most as a philosopher. But I think that what Dostoevsky does here and the way his work or his ideas come through can only be expressed in this particular form of uh, whether you want to call it Manipian satire, uh, whether you want to call it epic, um, this dialogical form in which these ideas are taken seriously, re represented compellingly and allowed to engage or talk with each other, which is not something that is either done in the sort of classic, sort of either French or English novel, which of the, of the, of the same period, or which, which tend to be wary of ideology uh, and the role ideology plays in our lives. Um, and, and by ideology, I mean explicit political ideology or specific spiritual religious views. Uh, it takes those things seriously, uh, but also is it, it's not didactic. 
even though Dostoevsky has a very, very expressed point of view, this is not, the, the book is not a vehicle for um, the particular expression of, of one correct point of view, but rather a novelistic depiction of what happens when these particular views are taken seriously uh, and the kind of society and people that they create. And in that respect is the consummate work, I believe, of political literature, even though I happen at the end of the day, and I think this is despite the fact that I happen to disagree with the, 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 the world that Dostoevsky thinks should replace this one. So number three, um, couldn't uh, leave poetry out this list. And this one, now we are indeed getting into Desert Island this territory, but number three is the collected poems of Wallace Stevens, who is, I think, uh, has to be has to be my favorite has to be my favorite poet. Uh, and um, of course, it is again here sort of cheating to use a collection of work. But uh, the reason I have included it here on my list, of course, is that as a poet, uh, Wallace Stevens is not just. Uh, you know, he, he's, uh, he's engaged in, in uh, philosophy, in his, in his poetry, uh, without question. And he, he himself uh, had a sort of wanted to have a side a gig, as it were, and he wrote, he wrote a series of essays uh, and wanted to present at philosophical conferences. But the, the, the true genius of Wallace Stevens is to do philosophy in the form of the, the, the form of the trope, which is say the way that poetry tropes language. Uh, and it is all the more profound for being in uh, this poetic form rather than a, a standard form. And I think that's very clear in the poems of Stevens that, that uh, you know, the, 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 the fan favorites, right? From, uh, from, the, from the snowman to uh, 13 ways of looking at a blackbird to Sunday morning, right? So what is Sunday morning about? Sunday morning is about the necessity of death to give meaning to our lives um, here on earth and the sort of without mortality that um, our lives, our mortal lives would lack for meaning and fullness of experience. As you write, you know, death is the mother of beauty. Um, and that is the exchange that we have uh, and the consolation that we have for our mortality. So that's the, you know, that's a big hit, but also the sort of great long poems like uh, Aesthetic de Ma, and in particular, my, my particular favorite of course is uh, Notes Towards Supreme Fiction, which is I think the great uh, philosophical poem. And uh, as I was saying uh, elsewhere, uh, it, it has a, uh, it represents a sort of an aesthetic program uh, to, to quote, there's the, the, it's divided into three parts, to quote the, the three chapter titles of it. Um, uh, it must be abstract, it must change, it must give pleasure. And this is the, this is the sweet spot of the, the aesthetic sweet spot. And I don't think as a sort of series of aesthetic criteria that we've really improved upon them. But of course, talking about the, the, the poetry in this way, um, neglects the extent to which, of course, the poetry is performance of all those things. Uh, so um, rather than a, as I'm portraying it here as a simple sort of rhetorical uh, or 
tool of persuasion, but rather a tool of, and I think also this is true of, of many of the, the experiences we're describing here, the, 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 the experience is much more close to conversion in a religious sense, the, the, the work of art converts you rather than persuades you of something. <coughs> uh, number two, work philosophy, uh, Wittgenstein's Philosophical Investigations, also a desert islandist, um, but uh, strange to put Wittgenstein on this list. But in fact, of course, I think that the thing that is so appealing about, about Wittgenstein is the way in which he is as every bit of as much of an, a modernist literary writer uh, as any of the other people who I've listed thus far. And what the philosophical investigations is, is in a very similar way. It's, um, it's uh, for those who haven't read it, it is set up in small, uh, and it's beloved writers as is, as is the Tractatus, his, his earlier work. Um, and I have always thought of it and it has taught me to read philosophy as literature um, and to think of philosophy as performing a, a more of a literary task, which is to say, uh, to change, as Wittgenstein himself says in, in the book, uh, to change aspect, to change your way, entire way of looking at the world, not to refute this or that premise, to make this or that argument, but to, to take the world in which you thought you saw by emphasizing different parts of it, to come and show you a, a different world that was hiding behind the world that you were looking at um, or standing in parallel to it. And he proceeds in this very, almost cubist way. Uh, he, he doesn't proceed linearly. The book is chopped up into short paragraphs of, and the, the sort of closest uh, style is to the genre, the, the aphorism. And in using that means, um, he is engaged in a process of, yeah, like of, of what he calls a philosophical therapy or therapeutics, uh, whereby the traditional questions of philosophy once approached in this way by a return to a, an attention as any good literary critic or as any writer does to how language is actually used by people in an everyday sense and by paying attention to that rather than to uh, you know first or second order predicate logic and trying to purify language of its seeming incoherence um, but by showing how that language works or functions in the context of its ordinary use um, to divest ourselves from the sort of vexing philosophical questions and to convert ourselves into a space where we can attend to the world that is there and not explain it per se, but rather describe it. So he's very uh, a literary philosopher. And the thing that he's doing is closer, I think, to literature than to philosophy as, as ordinary un ordinarily understood. Number one, um, this could have been Moby Dick, could have been Ulysses, uh, could have been the man without qualities, but the one writer who I have not mentioned, who I think has produced the thing that not only I have said that all these other 10 books are doing, but is in fact the everything novel is uh, In Search of Lost Time, yeah. Proust, uh, the everything novel, even in a way that Ulysses is not. Um, and uh, I, I struggle to say that um, because of the, the meaning that Ulysses has for me. But I think that the, the, the what, what, and of course, like how can one, how can one summarize <laughs> uh, 
you know, the, there's a, of course a joke about summarizing Proust, right? A Proust summarization con contest, right? Mm -hmm. But I think in the context of what, what we're describing here, of course, Proust does everything. He gives us um, the most fully realized characters. He gives us most fully realized characters from every sector of French society at the time. Uh, he gives us, uh, which includes artists and diplomats and soldiers, um, as well as, of course, the thing that everyone focuses on, which is, of course, the, the dying aristocracy. Um, but of course, uh, the thing that, that Proust does in the framework of a still recognizable novel is he's also, and this is what differentiates, differentiates him at the end of the day, obviously these are very different writers, but at the end of the day um, from Joyce is that Proust editorializes and there are passages throughout the entirety of this, of this wonderful book, um, which are essays, right? And so a lot of people um, think and talk about Proust as, as an essayist, but these essays are embedded in the larger context of a novel. So whether that's uh, uh, reflections, so, edit, so editorial, the narrator's editorial reflections on um, snobbery, um, resentment, jealousy, um, and of course the big ones, memory and time itself. Uh, what Proust does is he gives us a sort of convincing representation of life in which uh, reflection on life in this sort of discursive way uh, is also seamlessly embedded as well as doing everything else <laughs> that one can do with uh, literary forms. Of course, that is why I've put him, uh, Proust and In Search of Lost Time, very uncontroversially, I would say, number one. Wow, amazing. What an interesting list of books. We should probably wrap it up. So before we do, do you want to tell everybody where we can find you online, where we can uh, read all of your good work and catch up with you on Twitter? Yeah, uh, so uh, underscore Ryan Ruby underscore. That's, uh, that's me at Twitter. And ryanruby.info is, uh, is a sort of um, very spare space where I just collect all uh, the things that I right it is uh it's just like a you know a white page with my name on it and yeah. uh, but it has the whole it has the whole catalog of uh of uh of work some of which i've referred to here if you want to read it brilliant okay well i should let you go thank you so much for doing this thank That's you good. for hey, coming thank on. for having me this was a, a, a lot of fun Thanks once again to Ryan Ruby. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at beyondzeropod, and you can email us at beyondthezeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back with your next episode next week. <laughs>